This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Later in the perimenopause sequence, we do, of course, transition to more consistently lower estradiol. And that appears in the research and clinically to have quite a profound effect on metabolism, cardiometabolism, on insulin sensitivity in particular. But it can translate into insulin resistance and an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. What was their pregnancy or their pregnancies like? And if they've been sitting on you know, some simmering hypertensive or gestational diabetes type symptoms that aren't overt in their late 30s or into their mid 40s now pop their head up. Mother Nature has got our back because we continue to produce, to, to synthesize estrogen and testosterone from our adrenals once our ovaries go quiet. But if we've spent the last 10 years burning out our adrenals before our ovaries go quiet, we're going to have a rougher transition into menopause. This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists, and patients. We look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank, and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In Season 2 of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at cardiometabolic health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. I'm Tony Chambers, and this is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds. In this, the final episode of Between Clinical Minds, we discuss the cardiometabolic risks associated with menopause. We talk to ND Lara Bryden, naturopath and nurse Jane Hutchins, and naturopath Amanda Haberecht. Until women go through menopause, a man's risk of cardiovascular disease is higher then it flips. Lara Bryden is a naturopathic doctor and author of Hormone Repair Manual, in which she details all things perimenopause. As you probably know from the research, basically one way to think about it, when as women, when we are of reproductive age and making lots of estradiol and progesterone, we are sheltered from the cardiovascular risk that men already have. So we kind of, we have this superpower (laughs) from our ovarian hormones that we then lose. And we pretty much kind of drop back to the risk that men are at, maybe slightly worse than men, actually. That's what the research shows. So, and of course, happening alongside that is aging as well. So we're middle-aged by that point. And so there's all the risks associated with that. But it's more than just aging. The changes that happen with perimenopause in the first few years of menopause after the final period are quite a profound change in metabolism. And what I've seen the research describe it as 
it's a danger window, but also it's a window of opportunity to make changes and potentially improving, taking steps to improve metabolic and cardiovascular health during this time, during a woman's 40s and late 40s, early 50s, can do a lot for preventing future risk. Like they call it a window of opportunity because if we can make changes now at that time, it's like it changes the trajectory, if you will. Like it's what I call in my book, a tipping point. So you're at this moment in time where if you can go down a healthier path and you know establish a healthier metabolism at that moment in time, that's going to be a lot easier to maintain than to try to fix it later if you veer off into the direction of insulin resistance and inflammation and cardiovascular risk. Not a lot of women understand that they have that window of opportunity. Maybe they think that it's inevitable, but actually it's not. I hope this will be interesting to you and your listeners, but I, I see perimenopause through the lens of evolutionary mismatch. So in my in my perimenopause book, Hormone Repair Manual, I talk about how the evidence that actually menopause evolved. This is not just an accident of living too long. This is what is supposed to happen. We're essentially genetically wired for this to happen. And the hormonal changes themselves are not inherently disease producing. Like that just doesn't make any sense. But what evolutionary mismatch is, it's the these hormonal changes, this hormonal recalibration that we have to go through in the context of our modern food environment and our modern environmental toxins and you know other factors that create the risk. So ultimately, the cardiovascular risk is still from a lot of modifiable factors, but it's kind of um, amplified by the hormonal recalibration. Like it's it's sort of brought into focus because of this challenging time of trying to recalibrate our whole physiology, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think it's mm. there's so much we can do. It's it's we don't have to just accept this heart disease risk. And also I guess we should speak at this point about the fact that estrogen therapy arguably can reduce some of that risk. That is what some of the research is showing. But at the same time, what the research also shows is that if you're healthy in all the other ways, you're less likely to require estrogen therapy. So estrogen therapy can mitigate some of this metabolic shift. Mm. But if you have a healthy metabolism already, you're less likely to benefit from estrogen therapy or need it. This is why I think in the research around using estrogen therapy for prevention of cardiovascular risk, I really, really wish that they would, and maybe they are doing this to some extent, they need to distinguish between women with insulin resistance and women with healthy insulin sensitivity, for example, because I think you would see quite a different effect. So in the population of women with insulin resistance, estrogen therapy is going to mitigate that or compensate for that to some degree. But there's also, as you know, lots of other ways to not become insulin resistant or to reverse mm-hmm. insulin resistance. And that that's around those modifiable factors that you were talking about before. So I'm yeah. assuming diet, stress reduction, those types of things. All the ways to improve insulin sensitivity and metabolic flexibility. These are the terms I use these days. Of all of which can have the nice side benefit of losing weight around the middle. But I tend to focus more on the the goalpost of metabolic flexibility. So that involves all the obvious things, but I'll just kind of spell them out. Like building muscle, maintaining muscle mass is one of the most important ways to maintain insulin sensitivity. And we do lose muscle mass with menopause, not just with age, but with the drop in estradiol because estradiol is 
anabolic, which is some people don't realize, but it's actually quite a muscle building hormone. So we we do struggle to maintain muscle mass after, you know, our late 40s into our 50s. We'll notice a change in body shape around that. And so, but of course you can build muscle with, you know, strength training of any kind and any kind of movement really. Mm. Um, other obvious strategies for improving metabolic flexibility would be, yeah, avoiding processed foods. A lot of the research is around highly processed now versus unprocessed natural foods. Rather than focusing on any one macronutrient, step one is to get the processed foods out. Mm. A lot of that's to do with something called acellular carbohydrates, which are carbohydrates that are processed in the way that they don't feed. It's a double whammy. They don't feed the microbiome and the microbiome is waiting to have that important nutrition and it goes straight into the bloodstream. And Mm obviously, you know, it puts a stress on insulin sensitivity. So that's obviously think obvious things like not smoking. <laughs> and I would argue some basic nuts and bolts nutrients for metabolism, which as you know, from our previous conversations in my book would include magnesium and taurine, which I, I sound like a broken record about those <laughs> two nutrients, but they really do support, well, they do so many things, but they support mitochondria. They support healthy metabolism. Um, yeah, so that's just a, a teaser of some of the ways you can support circadian rhythm that helps to support insulin sensitivity and metabolic flexibility. Just going back, because I'm, I'm interested in the mechanisms that you kind of alluded to with estradiol right at the beginning of the conversation. Can you talk about that, please? So estradiol is our superpower in terms of metabolism and cardiovascular risk. It's doing several things while we have it. It directly supports mitochondria. The mitochondria love estradiol. And just to be clear, we don't drop to zero estradiol with menopause. Far from it. Like we still make estradiol inside cells just as men and children and everyone, you know, estradiol is an essential nutrient for lots of things, essential nutrient, essential hormone for lots of things, including mitochondrial health. But certainly during those years where we have an abundance of it, we get some benefits from that. So mechanism one would be direct support of the mitochondria. Mechanism two with estradiol is that it, um, it's kind of interesting actually, it reduces intestinal permeability. So estradiol is really good for the gut. It thickens the mucus lining and it actually alters the microbiome, that's my understanding. So with the drop in estradiol, we do, as women, we do tend to get greater intestinal permeability and what they call meta-inflammation, this endotoxemia that worsens around the time of menopause. That, as you probably know, has a cardiovascular risk. That's the role of LPS or lipopolysaccharide affecting insulin resistance. Other mechanisms, well, there's other mechanisms in that estradiol seems to just be really beneficial for the cardiovascular system in general. So it's good for the endothelial lining, there's all that side of things. But also the sticking with the metabolism side of things, there is the fact that both estradiol and progesterone, just to bring in our second ovarian hormone, have beneficial anti-androgen effects. So this is interesting in that I came across this amazing paper, which we can put in the show notes if you want, which really laid it out, talking about sex differences in metabolism. So in men in the male body, testosterone improves, higher levels of testosterone improves insulin sensitivity. In women, it's exactly the opposite. So in the female body, what they call androgen burden or a higher level of testosterone 
worsened insulin sensitivity. And in the paper, they plotted out into this graph of population of kind of men and women, and then they have like the low testosterone men and the high testosterone women falling into this, what they're calling the metabolic valley of death. So this like, which sounds a bit dramatic, but like this, like insulin resistance metabolic syndrome from the two ends. So in women, which is our topic for today, we get a shift at menopause, in the later phases of perimenopause and into menopause, we get a shift to what in my book I call testosterone dominance. It's increased androgen burden. A lot of the literature, the papers talk about the shift from gynoid body shape, gynoid Mm. fat distribution, which is gynoid is fat on the hips, fat on the hips and bum and legs, to android fat distribution, which is weight fat around the visceral fat, basically around the middle. Mm. And that some degree of that is inevitable to some, I have to just say, like, you know, for anyone, practitioners, anyone listening, there will be a thickening of the waist with menopause. That's the shift to the more androgen fat distribution. And actually it's more than just, you know, where the fat is deposited. There's there, in that paper that I just referred to, they talk about the masculinization of adipose tissue, especially abdominal adipose tissue that happens with menopause and exposure to andro- higher level of androgens and how it um, is more inflammatory and sort of this more, you know, cardiovascular risk associated with that. So if any listeners might be thinking, oh, that sounds quite similar to polycystic ovary syndrome or PCOS, there are some parallels here. So yes, the androgen burden or the relative testosterone dominance with menopause is similar in some ways to the androgen excess of PCOS. They're a little bit different in that I'm not with menopause, I'm not talking about an overt and increase in androgens, although there can be a, there is a slight bump up in androgens with perimenopause, but mm-hmm. it's more just an, a result of losing estrogen and progesterone. So then the androgens shine through. And also SHBG or sex hormone binding globulin goes down with menopause. All the ways as natural practitioners that we can improve levels of SHBG is arguably quite good for this androgen burden of menopause, insulin resistance potentially. And like, just for example, ways to improve SHBG is things like phytoestrogens. I'll just be clear. Phytoestrogens are not estradiol. Like they Mm. cannot provide us with estradiol. They're not a replacement for something like an estrogen therapy or an estradiol therapy, but that's not to say they don't have benefits. And the benefits of phytoestrogens in younger women of reproductive age is actually that phytoestrogens can have a beneficial anti-estrogen effect. Mm. But in women that we're talking about now who are transitioning to this lower estrogen phase, they phytoestrogens can have a beneficial SHBG boosting effect and to some degree sort of a, a pro-estrogenic effect. You said that it is inevitable that we will have some form of waist thickening. And is that even when we're doing our best to increase sex hormone binding globulin? Yes. Let's just think about what's possible for what, what the goalpost mm-hmm. is for healthy metabolism in our 50s and beyond. Yeah. We need to maintain muscle mass. We need to maintain insulin sensitivity. Mm-hmm. That will result in generally being leaner, especially if you can get muscle mass on your glutes. You know, that's going to help with sort of an hourglass shape. But the true hourglass gynoid shape, narrow waist, wider hips, that was estradiol. Like if that's gone with menopause, I don't know. Maybe I don't know if women want to hear that or not, but I'm just like, it's just like, but I guess part of me is like, you don't need to have 
the hourglass figure that you had at 20, if if you even had it at 20, I mean, not everyone had that at 20, but like, that's actually not a requirement for being healthy. Mm. Maybe we have to shift our ideals about what is healthy and what is, you know, because at the end of the day, we want to be healthy. It's not about looks, it's about healthy. So I think, I think it's a realistic expectation to lose weight, some weight around the middle, especially if that has been that apple shaped insulin resistance weight that will improve with, you know, some of all the treatments we talked about before. I'll just mention, um, the role of fatty liver in some of this. So fatty liver is very involved in insulin resistance. No surprise. It's interesting because of course I'm a naturopath. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I would have known about supporting the liver is a thing that we've been doing for decades. And I often don't maybe speak about it in those terms, but just in the last few months, I've come across this amazing review paper about Silymarin for reducing fatty liver and improving insulin sensitivity. So, it's kind of back to some of those liver support. Another nutrient that's really good for fatty liver, I just want to mention it while I'm thinking about it, is choline, especially some of the activated cholines for improving fatty liver, thereby improving insulin resistance. Choline is also really great for the brain. And I, there's another very interesting thing about choline. This great paper came out called, I've got it in front of me here so I can actually quote it to you. It's called Perspective. Estrogen and the risk of cognitive decline, a missing cholinergic link. So they talk about how estradiol, and I already knew this, but just it's quite important. Estradiol mm-hmm. supports the, the PEMPT enzyme. That's the P-E-M-T. It's the, the gene and the enzyme that helps with endogenous choline production. As you know, like we can make some choline, but we also have to in, ingest some choline. Mm-hmm. And that enzyme is highly dependent on estradiol for its activities. So we do get this drop in ability to make choline with Mm. menopause. And as you can imagine, that is going to affect the brain for sure. Mm. It directly affects memory um, and also affects fatty liver, which they actually don't talk about fatty liver too much in that paper. But I would just say for what it's worth, it's going to be an insulin resistance factor as well. So this would be, I guess, another mechanism by which dropping estradiol is going to affect several metabolic outcomes. And taking choline can be a game changer for memory and fatty liver. And um, it's one of my, it's on my radar of supplements that I'm very interested in. Just about on fatty liver, what markers are you looking for for that? Are you looking at uric acid? Elevated ALT, yeah. ALT. Yeah, especially when, as you know, the liver enzymes, there's lots of different explanations for high liver enzymes. If they're all elevated, like if GGT is high as well, Mm. then look for other explanations. But like uh, the classic fatty liver insulin resistance picture is... ALT as a standalone kind of elevation or like subclinical elevation. I might speak a little bit about diagnosing insulin resistance because it is so commonly missed. So with my patients, I will say something like, I think you have insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Like I asked my doctor about that and they tested my glucose and HbA1c and they're fine. So I'm fine. I'm like, no, no, you're not fine. Like that's not enough to rule out insulin resistance. So Mm -hmm. warning signs of insulin resistance include fatty liver, high-ish ALT, Mm -hmm. uh, weight gain around the middle, like uh, which we've just spoken that that apple shaped weight gain, yeah. Skin tags, which people can ask about, and those little like they're almost like little warts, but they're not warts. They're like little you get on your neck, and mm. there's that skin darkening called ankenthosis nigricans. Not everyone gets that, but 
if that's showing up, that's again on the sort of neck and under the arms, that's a classic sign of insulin resistance. And then high cholesterol, high triglycerides, those are all little red flags for insulin resistance, although of course they can mean other things as well. Mm. And then the test I use is I, I measure insulin. So there's been a bit of a, what you would call paradigm difference between natural medicine and conventional medicine. Mm. They're very focused on conventional medicine. I think I could say it was very focused on glucose, blood glucose. And mm. whereas certainly from my perspective, I'm more interested in insulin because the key feature of insulin resistance is high insulin. So mm. the high insulin, just to clarify, is both biomarker, kind of an effect, a compensatory sort of effect of the underlying cellular dysfunction, like the deep metabolic dysfunction in the cell, which includes the mitochondria, Mm -hmm. results in insulin being high. But at the same time, high insulin, hyperinsulinemia worsens metabolic flexibility and like impairs metabolic flexibility and also has lots of negative effects. Like high, chronically high insulin is quite bad for the cardiovascular system. It's bad for the endothelial lining. It's um, directly promotes uh, fatty liver as well as the reverse fatty liver promoting insulin resistance. And high insulin can play a role in women's health as well. I'll just touch on that because of course that's my field. High insulin thickens the uterine lining, may play a role in fibroids. It's Some of that is to do with it, that it's a growth hormone. So insulin is also anabolic growth hormones. So that's where the skin tags come in. Um, that's where the potentially thickened uterine lining comes in as well as Obviously, the thickened uterine lining is in perimenopause is a big part too from loss of progesterone, but there's insulin can play a role. So then I measure insulin either as a fasting insulin, which is a little less sensitive test. And then there's something called the homeostatic model. It's called a HOMA IR index. That's that's three insulin, fasting insulins ratioed with, with glucose. You can order that. But what I typically order with my patients is a oral glucose tolerance test with insulin. So you measure fasting insulin and then you measure insulin at the one and two hour mark. And the interesting thing about all of this, just to say again, it's a paradigm shift because it's like not just the hyper-focus on glucose the way medicine mm-hmm. typically is, but even though doctors are kind of often clinically sort of more focused on glucose and saying, oh, there's no point to test insulin, all the research papers track fasting insulin. So there was just, you know, when they're actually looking at insulin resistance and testing it, they use fasting insulin as a marker. And there's been a couple of papers lately suggesting that, yes, fasting insulin is a useful marker for tracking progress, not necessarily for the, always for the initial diagnosis, but certainly for kind of tracking progress. So I would encourage practitioners to look at that in, in Australia or certainly in Sydney where I have practiced, if that's where listeners are, you can order an oral glucose tolerance test with, with insulin for like $60. Like, you know, it's, it's not expensive. It's, um, I would say that's a really good investment Mm in a patient's health, they don't have to keep doing it, but at least to, so they don't have to keep repeating the whole glucose mm-hmm. tolerance test because that's stressful, but at least get a baseline and that includes a fasting insulin. And it's just can be very useful clinically because often you won't see significant fat loss until that fasting insulin comes below, I'd say eight milli international units per liter. So, but if you're tracking fasting insulin, 
you can be reassuring your patients, say your metabolism is improving, like your cardiovascular risk is going down and you're opening the door to future weight loss by having a more functioning metabolism. Um, the other thing you can track is C-reactive protein, which I didn't say, but chronic, like a chronically low level of elevation of CRP is consistent with insulin resistance as well. Jane Hutchins is a registered nurse and naturopath specialising in women's health. She says there are so many aspects other than hormonal change to consider as women embark on perimenopause. So we've spoken about what was their pregnancy or their pregnancies like. Mm-hmm. And if they've been sitting on you know, some simmering hypertensive or gestational diabetes type symptoms, that aren't overt in their late 30s or into their mid-40s, now pop their head up. Mm. So if you're 40 having your first baby or if you're 35, then 45 is when you're at that 10-year time of having increased risk of cardiovascular disease after having hypertension in pregnancy. Mm. So there's all that sort of stuff. So there's the age, there's hormonal change of perimenopause, there's the catch-up from whatever happened in pregnancy. Plus they're at a life stage crossroads, yeah, more so than men. So, you know, the classic thing is, is that that sandwich years thing. Yes. As we've spoken about where you've got a teenager who is making you sleepless and your mum mm-hmm. seems to have dementia and that's making you mm-hmm. sleepless. <laughs> and your husband, you never see him because he's turned out to, he's liking to He's taken up being a triathlete and it's like, well, good. <laughs> so I care what you're doing, just so long you're out of my way. Um, I've got other stuff to deal with. Um, so that's hugely stressful and that will increase cortisol. And as you lie awake thinking about that, that will make your cortisol levels worse and make your insulin resistance worse, reduce your oxytocin, increase your blood pressure. And it, it's kind of, you get on this little trap in this cycle so I think that's really important to consider where women are midlife. Do they need or want or feel a, a desire to change work or go back to work or leave work? Um, it's a really interesting stage in their 50s. I have friends who are starting whole new worlds and I have friends who are retired. <laughs> God, what a mixed bag. Yeah, um, But it is a really different time and, you know, Teenage children, definitely. 25-year-old children, they can still be problematic. Um, And they might just be doing normal, fabulous things, but just that exploratory branching out stuff Mm. that's scary as a parent. But having parents who are unwell Mm. or just increasingly frail and having to do something as heartbreaking as place a parent into aged care Mm. is immeasurably stressful. Mm. So there's a lot. Um, and then because of all that, the growth area for selling wine is to women in their 40s and 50s. Absolutely. That, that's the peak alcohol consumption stage, ladies, mm. um, which increases their cardiovascular risk, which increases their diabetes risk, which increases their menopausal symptoms. So I get it. I did it. You reach for one <laughs> or two or three or whatever, but it makes everything else worse. So they, there is some really distinct issues for females at this time. Just on alcohol, I I watched an SBS, I think it was Insight, uh, it was a few years ago now, and the rates of alcohol addiction abuse amongst women of that age is absolutely huge. It's massive. And perpetuated by our culture as well. 
And menopause is a great time to get in there and catch people and say, all right, this is your transition time. You're transitioning from menstruating to non-menstruating. Now you're going to transition how you live your life Mm -hmm. because you have to. Mm. Because if you don't do it now, it's going to get ugly quick. We can either, I guess, make choices and lifestyle changes and things that can actually be really positive as far as the change is concerned or negative. So nothing is a fait accompli, is it? No, no. And, you know, probably less than 20% of women in Australia have bad menopauses and less than 10 have really bad menopauses. Mm. And by that, I mean, they just find it incredibly hard to function. They don't sleep. They're family kicks them out to the doghouse, you know, all of that sort of stuff because their behaviour is so obnoxious. And that's the sort of thing people come to me saying. They'll say, oh, yeah, the hot flush is whatever, but my family, I'm not quite sure how much they're going to, how much longer they're going to put up with me Mm. because I'm just mean (laughs) or cranky (laughs) or all over the place. And if I'm not yelling, I'll be crying. It's kind of like PMS on steroids. Well, it is PMS on steroids. It's PMS on cortisol. Um, <laughs> so, so no, it's not a fait accompli. And it's not just about your reproductive hormone changes. It's that other stuff. It's mm. your teenager who's getting drunk in the park. It's your mum. It's your boss. It's, I don't really like my husband anymore. Like, it's all of that stuff. Maybe I want a career change. Maybe I don't want to live here anymore. It's a lot of, yes, yeah, introspection. Yeah. Why did I become a teacher? I just did it because everyone did it, you know, all that Mm. stuff. Um, And you have to flip it to, all right, well, that sucks, so what are we going to do? And if your kids have moved out, sad, but free. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to them on Facebook, whatever. Um, (laughs) So it is a really great change and seeing women midlife flip that switch and so, right, damn it, I've looked after everyone else, my partner, I've supported through his or her career progression, I've raised the kids, I've looked after my parents, I've done all that. It's like big time me time. Mm, yeah. And and you, like just physically, apart from mentally and mental health um, and equity, um, but physically <laughs> then it, you need to take this opportunity because it is a really significant time in physiological development with age and hormonal change that can be managed or if it's not handled well, it can be really complicated and set you up for the rest of your life being pretty average with really significant cardiometabolic issues, sarcopenia, loss of bone density, all of it. Loss of brain, people really miss their brain. And, you know, I went through the worst of my perimenopause at a time of other crises in my life. And one of the things that I really missed was my brain. I remember speaking to a GP saying, I used to know stuff. (laughs) I don't (laughs) anymore. (laughs) Look at things I've written. I think, God, I wrote it and I don't understand it. You know, (laughs) what the hell happened? So for me, I needed to deal with that stress and I knew it but I just also needed to talk about it. Mm. And I, I got uh, naturopathic support. She did, GP did all my blood tests and laughed at my jokes appropriately. <laughs> um, <laughs> once you moved to Northern Territory, God, can't believe it. I really want to move there because um, she's the people I've ever found. And I saw a psychologist because there were some significant crises that I needed to address for the quality of my life ongoing. Mm. And you need to do all of those things. You need to do all of the things. 
so obviously I've got a list of things here and I think it's pretty clear that there is a link between all of these things, between perimenopause and that transition and metabolic syndrome and hypertension, diabetes, insulin resistance and all of those things that I've mentioned. But what in your opinion or your experience is the main driver of it? Look, I'm going to go. No, not one thing. It doesn't have to be one thing. Good. (laughs) Good. It's like being, you know, at a shop only being able to buy one lolly. Um, (laughs) So speaking about lollies, insulin resistance (laughs) uh, would be a really big one. Yeah. And, you know, you can just look at the woman when she walks in and, you know, caveat, don't judge book by its cover uh, because you can have someone with insulin resistance and they can be very slim. Um, and, you know, we don't want to be judgy-judgy, but you make an assessment on how they look. Are they perspiring when it's not hot? And uh, do they have really marked central adiposity? And do they have that kind of, you know, measure up under their armpit fat and back fat and that sort of thing? Mm. You're looking at insulin resistance. And then you ask what they eat and you think, well, well, we could do a blood test, but we don't really have to. Um, uh, so insulin resistance is a huge one because that does drive things like arterial stiffness. And interestingly, arterial stiffness ramps up most in the first year after your last menstrual period. And then it comes down again. So that window does have like a time frame around it. So ideally, you get into it perimenopausally. So when you're in clinic and someone comes to you and she's 40 and she says, I'd like to talk to you about my headaches or my arthritis or whatever, my IBS, then you say, cool, next time we're going to talk about menopause and she'll look at you like you're an idiot (laughs) Um, (laughs) or she'll be offended. So I'm like, God, I'm not that old. Um, (laughs) Just you wait, honey. Um, (laughs) um, But you explain to her, so what you do now will help your IBS and your arthritis or whatever. But you're prepping. So when you do hit menopause or the perimenopausal change, you'll be ready. You'll be primed and you'll be able to get through that transition a lot better. And at the other side of it, your cardiometabolic risk factors will be much less. And if you're having difficulty, and this sounds really nasty and manipulative, but, you know, if you're trying to convince her, say, you know, so how are your mum and dad? Oh, well, they're hopeless. You know, (laughs) they don't do anything. They're both overweight. They're on lots of medications, blah, 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 blah. So is that what you want? Mm. And is that what you want for your children? So obviously, you know, she may not even be feeding her children anymore, let alone breastfeeding them at perimenopause. But there's modelling that comes in. Absolutely, yeah. You know, you need to model that behaviour for them as well. Yeah, absolutely convincing them. So insulin resistance is a huge thing and mental health and stress is a huge thing. Amanda Haberecht is a women's health naturopath from Sydney who's been in practice for 25 years. Look, there's there's often like just with these patients, you know, because often I've had a relationship, a lot of my patients, Tony, I've seen them through their fertility (laughs) journey and now they're seeing them for, for menopause. So, you know, I'll suddenly be alerted. I was like, you've never had cholesterol issues before and your cholesterol's climbing up. You've never had elevated blood pressure and your blood pressure is spiking, you know, up. Or we'll see that they've got, you know, cortisol fluctuations. And um, so, you know, that helps us kind of work out 
where we need to go and where we need to investigate. And obviously, you know, their family history. Mm. And I've spoken to a few cardiologists about this very just kind of anecdotally. And a lot of cardiologists will say, and it's what they do as well, they kind of ask, you know, when was the first event of your father or your brother or whatever? If you're asking a woman and she'll say, oh, my dad had a heart attack at 53 or my brother had a heart attack at 45, Mm. there's a bit of a rough rule that you need to be watching that woman closely 10 years after the first event Mm. of other kind of male members of her family or even less if she's gone through early menopause because we know if she's had premature ovarian failure or gone through early menopause her risk is even higher so Mm. it's really important that you're having a very kind of detailed family history with this group as well and obviously the hormonal change is often what's helping to drive this so you know higher cortisol like you mentioned higher estrogen in relation to progesterone maybe even testosterone is high in relation to to those two as well any other things that you're you're seeing driving this there's a matrix, as you know, there's a constant cross-talking that's happening between, you know, the pituitary, the adrenals and, and the ovaries. So yeah. typically, especially in that transitional phase, yeah, you're often seeing kind of estrogen excess. So if she's still ovulating, albeit erratically, you can often see more of those high estrogen symptoms and you can see her follicular phase or day two estrogen can often be incredibly high because it's not being detoxified kind of adequately, Mm. um, erratic ovulation and having a poor luteal function, you know, at the end of her cycle. So you can see those kind of oscillations definitely. But I often use SHBG as a real helpful measurement too because, yes, you know, and and it's echoed in the research, Tony, where it will say that, you know, a cardiovascular risk is often kind of indicated by low estrogen and excess kind of testosterone or androgens generally. Mm. Whilst androgens drop with age, they don't necessarily drop with menopause. So our ovaries are still producing androgens even after we've gone through menopause. And obviously the adrenals have a huge role there, especially with hormones like DHEA, which help our secondary production of testosterone and estrogen. So mm. but that will also depend on her SHBG. So if she's got SHBG sitting in a real sweet spot, we're really mm. happy about that. But if her SHB is particularly low due to Hashimoto's, due to um, insulin resistance, due to cortisol, and due to a history of, like, for example, polycystic ovaries, et cetera, mm. we know that she's going to struggle to actually bind up her hormones so that we can often see those kind of, you know, unopposed hormones which can be running around causing damage and, you know, really fueling that concept of intracrinology, which is what the hormones are actually doing in the fat cells and that two-way street that is, estrogen driving inflammation, inflammation kind of driving estrogen and, you know, one of the hypotheses around why postmenopausal women who have very low serum estrogen have these much higher risks of estrogen receptive cancers. Mm. So that's why I'm often looking at all those other hormones. You've got to look at insulin, you've got to look at SHBG, you've got to look at cortisol. Like so often these women I'm doing a Dutch test with them, Tony, you know, you can get a lot of information from doing their Dutch test just to see which pathways her estrogen is going down. What's cortisol doing? You get some nice little kind of antioxidant markers and B6 and B12 markers and methylation markers so you can really have a very focused treatment plan with her moving her forward. 
And if you found sex hormone binding globulin is on the low side, what kind of strategies do you have for regulating that, bringing that up? So like a lot of phytoestrogens, we know that, you know, omega-3s will really help. We know that flaxseed oil is fantastic. Um, maca powder can help in there too. So, and definitely dietary because you've got to look at, well, why is there SHBG? Mm. So very commonly it's because of insulin resistance or a history of polycystic ovaries, et cetera. But it could be low because, you know, she's got undiagnosed Hashimoto's or subclinical thyroid. So if it's mm. a thyroid picture, we, we give her thyroid some love and amp up her thyroid hormones and look if there's obviously autoimmune or inflammatory reasons behind that. And if it's a, you know, insulin resistance picture, you know, and then you can often pick that up. She's had a history of polycystic ovaries or a history of gestational mm. diabetes. So we know that we need to be doing everything we can just to help regulate her blood sugar levels and reduce inflammation. So SHBG is the outcome. Yeah. It's it's the indicator. Um, so it depends what's causing her SHBG to be low. And equally, I'm concerned about when women's SHBG is very high you, and you often see that in a very estrogen dominant picture or I see that with women who are really under eating mm. and we know that that can correlate with risk of breast cancers and mm. ovarian cancers and we know that that can be associated with women who have been on a lot of hormonal medication whether it's IVF the pill mm. HRT over the years so mm. you always want these markers to be just sitting beautifully in that kind of Goldilocks position really what is the role, from your point of view, of that abdominal obesity in metabolic health? Because it is a vicious circle in some ways, isn't it? And it keeps coming back to this cross-talking of the hormones and the matrix. Mm. And that definitely there's that link with testosterone. But, you know, that link with testosterone is because of the, of the link with insulin, Tony, and the elevation of blood sugar levels. Yeah as well. And if your body's too inflamed, you're not going to produce enough SHBG to clear it. If you've got cortisol that's spiking all the way through the day, you are going to um, definitely have increased visceral weight gain as well. And you, and, and leptin, I mean, leptin is also, it's, you know, there is definitely so much uh, information out there for one of the biggest causes of that kind of central adiposity is actually elevated leptin. And with my women who they really are doing absolutely everything to try and lose weight at this time, you know, that, and again, it's very rarely measured by their conventional medicine practitioner. But what we also see with the menopause is leptin starts to increase. Mm. And for me, clinically, I definitely see these elevated leptin levels absolutely with women who have had a history of, again, synthetic estrogens and hormones, those women who've had autoimmune disease, women who've had a history of all sorts of kind of inflammatory conditions, you can see that they are much more at risk of elevated leptin and leptin resistance. And would those be the women as well who, because there are a lot of women at this time, obviously, who say they eat the same, they exercise the same, but they just can't lose the weight. Obviously, that's partly insulin for some people, insulin resistance. But do you think for you, it's it's a lot to do with, with rising leptin levels as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I see those patients and, you know, they're giving me their food diaries and I'm just like, you poor thing. And that's why reducing your calories will not improve leptin resistance. Mm. 
at all. Like we have to really kind of handhold these women and just kind of really counsel them around inflammation is key, detoxification is key for them. Mm. It can be incredibly stubborn and incredibly frustrating for this patient um, group and you've done all the other stuff so if you have a really kind of diligent woman who's adhering to a great Mediterranean diet and low-carb diet and it's a more kind of typical and expected insulin resistant picture you can often see her lose weight really well if she's really kind of um, diligent with her diet but with those women who have got elevated leptin it's much much tougher and so obviously then you said you're working on the inflammation so anti-inflammatories anti-inflammatory diet and then supporting detoxification anything else that you're doing with those ladies so with these women yeah that that's key you know you've got to try and work on detoxifying them really well and you've got to work on why they're leptin resistant Mm. has there been a history of estrogen dominance has there been a history of autoimmune disease, a history of IVF, all of those things. History of thyroid, I will often see with these leptin-resistant women too. Mm. But we, yes, so you've got to kind of obviously remove all processed and inflammatory foods with them. Lots of soluble fibre can be really helpful with them just to really feed their microbiome and improve their gut health and detoxification, absolutely. You've got to get them sleeping better because we know that women who don't sleep well, you're much more likely, just like insulin, you're much more likely. And that's why there's a lot of women who've got insulin resistance and leptin resistance. So mm-hmm. it's key to getting them to sleep better, not only just to reduce their cortisol levels, but we know we're detoxifying overnight. So it's really important that they often have high triglyceride levels as well Mm. so which we know that does respond to a reduction in carbs so I look at their kind of lipid panel as well if we're seeing high leptin so we can make sure that we're seeing anything else that's causative or, or correlating but the thing I find that works really really well with these women is you know a kind of it's a bit of a different type of time-restricted eating rather than doing Mm. that fasting. I just get them to do breakfast, lunch, dinner with five hours between their meals, absolutely no snacks, make sure that they're hydrating well between their meals and and just making, and and especially with breakfast, I make sure that breakfast is really high protein, high fat, Mm. no eating after dinner whatsoever. That's when slowly but surely, and it is not overnight with leptin, it really does take time, but that kind of combination of high protein, high fat, you know, those windows of detoxification between her meals, which obviously also helps the motility of her gut and very mindful eating, but also having those rest periods. So it's a, you know, type of time restricted eating and slowly but surely her leptin will improve with that, but it can take months and it's a struggle. One of the things that I say to women, like there's there's, there's a lot of wisdom that comes with your estrogen dropping, right? Menopause has such bad press, but it is just such a fabulous time mm. because you don't care as much, you know, like estrogen is such that care hormone and you just kind of don't care as much and you get better at just kind of listening to that wisdom. So there is this kind of opportunity. And that's why, especially with things like cortisol and our other stress hormones like adrenaline, et cetera, that we're really knowing, that we're learning that to wrangle our cortisol, it's not just about sitting there and meditating for an hour and a half. Like none of time to do that. But it's those little pause points 
where we just get let our body kind of drop into its parasympathetic nervous system. It's like five pages of your book or it's just having your cup of tea outside first thing in the morning or it's putting your legs up the wall at night and honouring your circadian rhythm, getting light in the morning, getting dark at night. It's all of those kind of really simple things. But our adrenals, and this is why menopause, you know, it's always talked about in terms of oestrogen, but it's it's very much an adrenal disease, right? You know what I mean? It's very adrenal condition, I should say. Menopause can be one of the healthiest times of our life without any kind of question. But Mother Nature has got our back because we continue to produce, to um, synthesise oestrogen and testosterone from our adrenals once our ovaries go quiet. But we've spent the last 10 years burning out our adrenals before our ovaries go quiet. We're going to have a rougher transition into menopause. And that's what absolutely I see with women who have extreme symptoms, especially with a lot of women who have really extreme hot flushes and you know this because you're giving them all the shadavari and black cohos and sage and you know evening primrose all in the world and, and you're not seeing any shift mm. in, in a lot of those kind of so-called low estrogen symptoms and where you have to go is definitely to her adrenals and definitely to managing her cortisol spines and that's the long-lasting changes with her symptoms. In keeping with the theme of stress, Jane Hutchins says she talks to midlife women in terms of nourishment and calm rather than deprivation and lack. And one of her main prescriptions seems simple, but often has to be learnt. So I spent a lot of time, increasingly in the last six months, I'd say, just like, I can't tell you how many times I've said the word rest. Just rest. Will you stop? Just rest. Nope, stop. I'm going to do this. Nope, stop. (laughs) Um, and you know, you're busy and you think, okay, well, I've got the washing on, I've done this and they're fine. And this, what will I do now? I've got a moment. It's like, well, you, you stop, you do nothing. You sit down, you might have a cuppa, have some nice lemon balm tea and you don't have to do anything. Your worth is not your productivity. They're two completely separate things. You do not have to do things ever. Well, you know. You have to stop at red lights. Um, but, you know, you don't have to continually do things for other people or because, you know, and just rest and simplify. This was the final episode of Season 2 of Between Clinical Minds. We've enjoyed talking to all of our experts and putting the season together for you. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Stay tuned for Season 3. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website, bioconceptsengage.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au, where community is more than a concept. Music